We are previewing the positions of the first three tenet systems regarding the uh, selflessness or identitylessness of persons and looking at that within the larger context of uh, also the selflessness or identitylessness of all phenomenon when we get to the Mahayana tenet systems. And last time we started with Chittamatra, and we saw that uh, for Chittamatra, the selflessness of uh, persons is the same as in the um, Satrantika system, that there is the coarse selflessness of persons, that the person is a static monolithic entity, substantial entity, that uh, can uh, exist independently of a body and mind when it is liberated. And this was uh, asserted in common with the Vaibhashikas. Satrantikas went on to assert the subtle selflessness of a person, that a person is a substantially existent, self-sufficiently knowable phenomenon or entity, that it can be known all by itself without uh, simultaneously having its basis for imputation appear. Um, first, the basis for imputation would appear, uh, and then in the next moment, uh, well, it would be, try that again. The basis and the imputation, in other words, some aspect of the aggregates and the person would appear simultaneously, but first, the person would be cognizant, the basis of imputation would be cognized. And then in the next moment, both the person, the imputation on it, and the basis would be cognized. Um, this is different from a uh, whole in parts. When we talk about a whole in parts, then a whole in parts, you don't have to have the parts appear first, and not appear, but uh, the whole and parts would appear simultaneously, but it's not that the parts have to be known first and then the uh, whole together with the parts have to be known, but the whole and the parts are known simultaneously, whereas in the case of non-congruent affecting variables like person or speed or aging or uh, um, broken, these sort of uh, things first, although the basis for imputation and the imputation uh, arise simultaneously and appear simultaneously. First you have to cognize the basis and then the uh, imputation together with the basis. But the fact that the whole is an imputation on parts and the person is an imputation on the aggregates, um, they are similar in the sense that they're imputations, but they're a different type of phenomenon in this sense of uh, how they're cognized. We then went on to uh, talk about the uh, selflessness of all phenomenon in Chittamatra that applies to persons as well. And the uh, course selflessness of all phenomenon is that uh, when Dependent phenomena appear in the form of mental holograms and non-conceptual cognition. It's impossible to establish their existence in that cognition as 
coming from external natal sources separately from the karmic seed. That's the natal source of the consciousness and mental factors cognizing them. That, as we saw, was a lot of words in the definition and the objection that the Chumatras were making was to the subtrantic position that uh, in moment one the external object exists and uh, you know all by itself and in moment two then we cognize it so the cause of the cognition is uh, um, the source the natal source of the cognition which is like the oven out of which bread comes is uh, the external object and that's there the moment before cognition and then the question is how would you possibly know that it's there um, so because of that objection then the Chinavatras say that both the uh, that the natal source of the um, mental hologram that appears in the cognition and the mental source of the consciousness and all the mental factors that cognize it all of that comes together from one natal source, the seed or tendency for this cognition as uh, an imputation on the storehouse or foundation consciousness, the Anivinyana. So what we're talking about here in uh, Chittamatra is uh, the voidness of uh, dependent phenomenon. Dependent phenomenon are referring to uh, non-static phenomenon, things that change from moment to moment. The Chittamatra system, we also have a uh, fairly established phenomenon, that's voidness, as defined in Chittamatra, and then a totally conceptional phenomenon, which are the static phenomenon, like uh, other than voidness, so uh, categories. And there's an identitylessness of each of these, um, which then gets very complicated, and we're only talking about the uh, dependent phenomena when we talk about coarse and subtle voidness in uh, Chittamantra. So it gets very, very complicated, very complex. But uh, what it's dealing with is the um, what's happening in a cognition of you know one of these non-static phenomenon, so like the person as an imputation on some aspect of the aggregates, what's going on. And uh, we can look at it from the uh, two situations. One is uh, non-conceptual cognition, when we actually see someone. So uh, when we see someone, the source from which that mental hologram is coming. In other words, that whole package, the mental hologram and the consciousness of it, visual consciousness and the um, mental factors, uh, attention, concentration, etc., all of that. And when we're talking about the mental hologram, it's a mental hologram of a person and some aspect of the aggregates, so, I mean, the two of them are appearing together. So that whole package is coming from one source karmic seed. So now, what about the mental hologram that uh, appears of a person with aggregates uh, as a basis of imputation in a conceptual cognition? Um, this is where the subtle selflessness uh, um, is uh, focused on that. Because remember, when we have a conceptual cognition, what do you have? You know, We're thinking of 
someone, ourselves, or uh, somebody else, and that's through a uh, category. So when we think about um, our mother, for example, we have the category mother, so, uh, and then we have a uh, mental hologram that represents that category. So every time that we think of our mother, what actually appears, the mental hologram, could look quite different. But they all fit within, you know, as we remember our mother. Uh, and that means our mother is a person and also maybe what she looks like or even just her name or something like that. So we're talking about that appearance, that mental hologram when we think about ourselves, or when we think about our mother, or when we think about anybody or anything. And in the Sautrantika system, as you recall, or maybe as you might recall, then we said that uh, the uh, defining, well, first of all, we said that uh, everything is has self-established existence and existence established by the defining characteristic mark. So that means that uh, there is a defining characteristic of anything, let's say, a person, you know, a mother, and, uh, well, mother is just the title, but let's say a person and of a, uh, you know, the body. And we saw that uh, that defining characteristic establishes that it exists as a validly knowable phenomenon. So now the question is, does that defining characteristic and self-establishing nature, specifically the defining characteristic, does that also establish that it fits in the category? And whether it's the same defining characteristic or a different defining characteristic, that could be debated. But in any case, we're talking about something on the side of the object. So according to Sautrantika, yes, uh, that defining characteristic does uh, function, in a sense, as fitting that hologram, that appearance, into the category. So then we had that exercise of thinking, you know, well, what categories do we actually fit into that we might be denying? And uh, there are many different categories that uh, we would validly fit into from the Sartrantica point of view. So it could be human being, it could be um, male, it could be female, it could be German, it could be American, it could be Japanese, it could be Brazilian, it could be um, a uh, profession. There could be many, many uh, different categories uh, that we would fit into and we would have problems when we tend to deny some of these uh, categories. That is Sautrantika system. But uh, what the Chittamantra system is saying is that although you have in that conceptual cognition a defining characteristic which establishes it as a noble, validly noble phenomenon, so sometimes I describe that as uh, a, something inside the object which encapsulates it in, in plastic and makes it a thing. 
So that they have, that they assert. But uh, they say that it doesn't, that defining characteristic is not a platform on which the category of human or you know, whatever can be placed. It doesn't serve as that. So the, that is, you know, if we put it in the technical language, it's that when a, the subtle selflessness of all phenomenon is that when dependent non-static phenomenon appear in the form of mental holograms and conceptual cognition, it's impossible that the defining characteristic mark that establishes them as knowable objects also has the power to establish them as belonging to the categories with which they're mentally labeled and as being the meaning and referent of the names and words with which they're designated. They're established as such merely by the power of being mentally labeled and designated as such. So this is not the easiest thing to uh, understand, but uh, maybe the explanation that I gave starts to open it up. That, uh, and I think that uh, when we look at examples of this, it becomes uh, much clearer. Do you follow a little bit so far? Okay, so, yeah? If I can reformulate the last part to see if I understand. Yes, please. Uh, that means that when we categorize something, we put something into a category. Yeah. We can do that not because of something that is in the thing that we're putting in the category. We can do that because we are able to create the category to have the category as a convention, not because of the object, but because right. of so the Right, so what he's saying itself. is that uh, we can, when we label something with a category, it's by a convention and not yeah. necessarily by the fact that the thing really fits into that category. Yeah. Right, but what that, the implication of that is that it's arbitrary what category things fit into, mm-hmm. that it's up to convention. Yeah. It may be our convention, it may be our society's convention, and so on. There's nothing objective about it. Yeah. Whereas the Sautrantikas would say that it's, you know, it's pretty, substanti- you know, it's pretty objective okay. that uh, we fit into this category or that category. This is reality. Mm-hmm. But here, remember, Chinamacha is getting more and more into the subjective sense. So, recall so this is the exercise that uh, I gave, made up. Recall thinking that the sounds of what someone was saying to you were such and such words. Somebody said something, such and such words, these are the words, that had such and such a meaning, and had such and such intention and emotions accompany them. And remember assuming that the other person understood them the same way as you did. Recall also fitting some of those sounds of the words into such categories as criticism, insult, and rejection, and assuming that the other person fit them into the same categories. You see where this is going? That uh, we hear words, well, first of all, the course of it, um, selflessness, a phenomenon. We thought that it came from the external source, or actually it's coming from our, mm-hmm. the karma. 
of uh, ourselves to hear it. And then we thought that uh, uh, they, that it really, you know, we fitted into the category of criticism and insult and rejection. And we think that they fitted into that category as well because objectively what they said, the sounds had the meaning that I think that they had and the intention that I think that they had and they fit into this category that I think that they had. Whereas it's actually just coming from your own mind. So recall being unaware, so this is the ignorance here, that the other person meant and understood them differently. We didn't, in other words, we were unaware of that. We didn't realize that. They thought that what they said were different words or had a different meaning and fit them into different categories, such as a playful joke. Right? They were just making fun of us. We took it seriously. So then identify the disturbing emotions, destructive behaviors, and suffering you experienced as a result of such unawareness and misunderstanding. That's the first part of the uh, exercise. Do you understand the, the example, you know, what, we're, what this is talking about? It really is very um, relevant to what we experience. This happens quite frequently with misunderstandings. You think they meant, you know, first, the coarse one was we think that they, you know, said what, you know, that we heard what they actually said, whereas in fact they might have, you know, we might have misheard them or not heard them clearly. Now, we think that they mean what we think that it means. And that also can lead to a lot of misunderstanding. Right? So, try to, you know, as uh, Shantideva and Sokapa emphasize, first we have to recognize what we're refuting. So we have to recognize the first level truth, basically, the suffering, the, um, well, the example, and then the suffering that uh, we experience, the problems that we experience when we don't, when we assume that the other person means and intends what we think that they do. And the solution, of course, is to ask, get more information. If we uh, come to a conclusion that can lead to a big misunderstanding and argument. So, first try to recall some situations where we we thought, for example, that the person was insulting us or yelling at us and they were just, you know, fooling around, making a joke. They didn't think that. even from the tone of voice. We think it means one thing, whereas to them it didn't mean that at all.
And then identify the disturbing emotions, destructive behavior, and suffering you experience as a result of such unawareness and misunderstanding. We got angry, we got into an argument, and then we were really upset and happy afterwards. Remember, conceptual cognition can occur at the time of the incident, or it can occur when we remember it later on. Think of how the words and meanings, and intentions, that you and they assign to the appearance of the sounds that each of you heard, and the categories that you and they fit these appearances into, think how these are merely conceptually labeled, just fit into a category. Although the sounds have the defining characteristics that made them sounds, and specifically the sounds of words having meaning. Right? Self-established as a sound and so on, and as meaning and words. Nevertheless, these defining characteristics didn't have the power to make the sounds be understood as a sound of specific words with a specific meaning, and as fitting into specific categories like insult or joke. Consider how even if the other person fit the sound of the words into the category insult, you could have avoided being hurt and getting angry by having fit them into the category nonsense. In other words, the category and the meaning that we fit things into really up to us. And of course it comes from habit. And we habitually fit it into categories that just cause suffering. Everybody's insulting me, everybody's against me. No matter what they say, it's threatening. In a sense, what it comes down to is not that we don't take what the other person says seriously. You know, you take it seriously, but you don't take it personally in terms of getting upset. 
you don't jump to you know premature conclusions especially when it's a very negative conclusion but get more information It's like when little kids are playing and one calls the other by a, a bad name. You can take it seriously and get very hurt and get very upset, or just consider this as nonsense. There, I think it's a very clear example. put your two-year-old or three-year-old to bed and they say, I don't want to go to bed. I hate you. Do you take those words as having the, the actual meaning that they really hate us? Or is it just words? They are the words, but what category do we fit it into? The intention behind it. Feeling what? Insulted. Insulted, right? Insulted. So it's talking about uh, the example of uh, yeah, arguments yeah. with your job partner and you feel insulted. I don't know, job or whatever, but you feel yeah. insulted. And oftentimes I could see that that's how we are taking, but what they mean is rather not that their intentions they want to insult, but maybe they just want to say that I want your understanding, or I want your right. warmth, I want your love. That's right. what they want to say, but it's expressed in the way that I'm taking it. Exactly. As That's exactly what we're talking about when you have an mm -hmm. argument with a partner and you take it as an insult or a very strong demand or something like that. And they didn't mean that at all. They, you know, the words that they said, the intention behind it was I need understanding, I need warmth, etc. Absolutely. That's exactly the type of examples we're talking about. And I think they are not exactly feeling skillful to express their feeling, and also right. they are not skillfully taking their... Exactly. Their They're not being skillful in explaining theirs, yeah. and we're not skillful in uh, understanding. However, remember, from the Chittimatra point of view, it's all coming from one seed of karma in our minds, what we experience. Yeah. They are experiencing something, we're experiencing something. You see, this is the, uh, the thing, that if you understand the subtle selflessness, you automatically will also understand the coarse selflessness of all phenomena. That even the words you know, that you're hearing, the sounds that you're hearing, 
coming from your karma, but uh, seeds, just as they are coming from their karmic seeds. So we might not even have heard the words correctly. And then, but we take it wrongly, so we get angry, we get agitated, but then it's, and we see that because you behave so, you said so, but right. we it's all our own. Right, so this is, the way we are taking this it. is perfect, because you said that then we get angry, so you've said that, you, you know, like that, so that is the self-substantially, that's the self-sufficiently knowable you. Dissociate them from being the imputation on the uh, form aggregate, the sound of the words that they said, and then just you, you insulted me, you're no good. And you're always like that, so static, monolithic, that's the way you always are. So in understanding the sub, this is what I was saying last time about Chittamatra, Shravaka, Chittamatra, you know, Shravaka's according to Chittamatra's focus on the Subtle selflessness of the self. The Pratyeka Buddha suffers. Uh, focus on the coarse selflessness of all phenomena. And the Bodhisattva focuses on the subtle selflessness of all phenomena. And then focusing on that, if you really understand it, you understand all the uh, lesser levels. Yeah, but the last week this part I didn't exactly understand is we if we understand the subtle selfness of all phenomena. Well last we week we didn't speak about the subtle selflessness. We okay. spoke about the coarse self the selflessness of all phenomena, just in terms of the sounds that we hear. Yeah. That that is coming from the seed of the appearance of the sounds. The hologram of the sounds that we hear is coming from our seed of karma. So you have to check, you know, did, you know uh, what I heard, was that really what you said? What I saw, was that really what, you know, is that really true? Now this has to do with your memory of it. What category you fit it into. So I mean, these are very intimately connected. You know, let's say you witness a crime. Well, did I really see that? And what do I remember? What category do I fit it into? So, you know, each of these is uh, subjective, in a sense. You know, especially when you're talking about, you know, legal cases in court and so on. What actually happened? That's very hard to say objectively. Each person has their own version. And remember, the, uh, what Tsongkhapa is saying is that there's no common denominator, no common locus that is sitting there objectively and everybody is looking at it from their own angle. So like uh, you do this uh, uh, multi-dimensional, multi-directional, multi-directed partiality which is in family therapy that uh, each person in the family gets their chance to explain how th the situation looks to them and each has its own validity. But you can't say that there is objectively 
something going on that each of them are looking at from a different angle. Right. I mean, I've been in this most serious situation that I was translating, and then I was told that my translation is bad. And oral I translation. That was wrong. That right. I she was doing mistake. oral translation, yes, and, it, and was it was a mistake. It was a mistake. And I said, no, I didn't make a mistake. I know I was right. So we had an argument, so we said we're going to watch the tape. So the tape is there. Now we have two witnesses watching the tape, the real tape, you know. Mm -hmm. And still there's the argument mm -hmm. that I, can, I translate correctly. No, you didn't. Finally, we were stuck there and somebody came by and said, what's going on? And I explained, I said, look, I, I translated correctly. But this was my husband and he said that, no, the family did not respond to what I said. So you must have made a mistake. So the guy laughed. He said, look, you used a Swiss word that this family didn't understand. Your Swiss word was perfectly correct, but French people don't, don't understand it. Mm -hmm. So in fact, the family didn't understand me, but I was absolutely correct that I translated correctly, except I translated in Swiss French instead of French French. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she's, so, let me... So, but anyway, so the question is that even mm -hmm. if you have an objective document from both sides to watch, mm -hmm. Unless it still doesn't solve the issue if you have a confusion that comes from something else. Mm -hmm. And then unless there is some third party that watches from the other side, then you cannot see it. And that's just adding something totally different. That, you know, when you're talking about misinterpretation of intention or voice, that in fact the differences between people, you know, you know that you're different, that's not dangerous. What is dangerous is invisible difference that each person believes that this is the same, but it's not the same. So I believe that, oh, this word means the same for you. It's obviously that it must maybe mean the same, and you believe that your word means the same for me, and at the end it does mean the same, and unless you have a third party saying, look, in this culture this is mean this, in this culture means that, then you can be stuck. Right, so to uh, review what she's saying, um, first of all, you're mixing up the course and the subtle level here, but uh, the, uh, um, she's talking about uh, an example in which she's translating into French uh, a talk in uh, English. And uh, um, course uh, selflessness is dealing with, you know, what were the sounds that she actually made? And uh, then the uh, subtle one is what do, what do those sounds mean? What words are they and what do they actually mean? So uh, in terms of, uh, she said that uh, um, I translated it correctly, which has to do with the meaning of the words. And uh, so the subtle one and uh, the speaker, her husband, said that, no, you translated it incorrectly. And so they went to the tape to uh, confirm the sounds of what you know, she actually said. So this, we had a discussion last time, does the tape recorder really, <laughs> is that objective or not? Because the tape recorder also could have failed, it could have uh, been indistinct, the volume could have not been uh, very uh, clear and so on. That uh, is often the case with a bad recording. So that's no guarantee that uh, the recording is uh, objective. 
But uh, then, uh, what she was talking about, did you translate it correctly? That has to do with the meaning of the words. And uh, the uh, um, problem here was that uh, the family that, uh, she, that they were translating for, the audience, uh, didn't understand the translation because she translated uh, into a Swiss word, Swiss-French word, and the family was French and they didn't understand the Swiss-French word, they uh, only understand French, French. So uh, this is a matter of or I mean it might have been I think the example was more that it was a word that existed both in Swiss and French uh, French but uh, had a different meaning in the two cultures so this is exactly what it's saying here just because you know it's a, a word you know first of all uh, it is established as a word that you see you know as a sound and what word did you say even that is, is subjective you can think that uh, let's say with two uh, homonyms you know the two words that uh, uh, are sound exactly alike which word did you say even that can be misunderstood let alone the meaning of the word and for meaning of words this is often very very subjective um, it can be according to a dictionary but it could be according to your own understanding of what the word means like for instance uh, the word love or her you know this type of thing I mean everybody has their own idea their own category I mean there's a category love but then they define it differently so this is exactly the type of problem that uh, we're speaking about here the issue and if we understand that uh, the defining characteristic of what appears in our concepts in our conceptual thinking which is where we attach meaning to words and so on that uh, this does not doesn't have the power to establish that it fits into the categories that we label them with the categories of meaning categories of what words do they actually say the category of intention and so on this is just mentally labeled and it would be mentally labeled you know what category we fit into comes out of habit basically and that can be changed if we're aware that it's not objective and we don't add the complication of taking it personally you're insulting me as opposed to it's just an insult when we make it personal then we get into the coarse and subtle selflessness of persons History. Uh, let's say. Oh, absolutely. History is completely conceptual. Japan, China, Japan, Korea, always we're still talking about what have happened in World War II, and then we are still having always discussion about it. Right. And the one see the fact in this way, another see the fact in another way. Mm -hmm. And I can see that it's totally 
the way how we see it. And the reality is not one, but probably many things have happened. And then one side is taking one fact, another side is taking another fact, and making their own stories. That's right. So I see that. Then I, I see that one thing very important is intention. That sometimes both sides creating some stories, but very purposely distorting the story with mm -hmm. some intention that they want to promote the conflict, so right. that they have some political benefit for their government or whatever. I mean, sometimes I see intentional distortion of the story. So that, of course, mm -hmm. creating story in the wrong intention. But then still, how do you say? Like the, so the truth is probably not one, but in the same time, there must be some more like valid way of seeing the reality. Right. Well, this okay, is a very this is a very this is a very difficult point. You know, how do we know anything validly? He's talking about the example of uh, uh, Japan and China, and uh, both sides still holding on very strongly to memories of World War II, and each side having their own version of history, and each side citing uh, different uh, uh, things that happened, and sometimes exaggerating them, sometimes making up things, and so on, and then getting, uh, it could be for political advantage, it could be uh, for uh, whatever, economic advantage, but uh, in either case, uh, people get very emotionally upset. I'm angry about uh, all of this. Well, this gets into a whole situation of what is history. History is a complete mental construct. If you think of it, then each person has their own experience of what happened. And so how do you put that together? Each person's experience is different. So they, uh, when I was at Princeton, this friend of mine who was uh, very loved to write with, uh, very big words and very, uh, you know, intellectually, he wrote uh, a paper which was, uh, if history obtains, man has attended it. Which, if we put into uh, Buddhist jargon, if history obtains means if it is a self-established thing then humans have just, you know, attended it. You know, they've, they've just, they haven't actually made it. They just are following the script or, fo or, or watching it. This type of uh, uh, thing. So what actually happened? Well, I mean, you know, what happened? Each per you can't say what happened. Each person had their own experience. And, you know, there's collective karma... So what they experienced was similar, but it wasn't that one thing was happening, self-established, and everybody attended it, watched it, and participated in it. I mean, just think of that. I mean, that, that would be, have to be what it is. There's a self-established history that's happening, and then each person is experiencing it differently. Can't be like that. But what if I could say Tibet? And Tibetan people, of course, says that it has been Tibet. And China say, no, actually, it has been actually part of China from the long time, which is actually historically quite not true. And right. making up the stories. Right. But if we say, well, but Chinese 
there is no objective reality and Chinese people see in their way and Tibetan people see in their way so there is no objective realities right so that seems like important to put some lines of what well this is this is exactly it what is the reality to the example of uh, Tibet Tibet says Tibet was always Tibet you know an independent place and China says no it's part of China so you have these words so now the question is what does it mean to be part of China and what does it mean to be independent? That wasn't there at the time, I think. Right. That wasn't there at the time. To be part of China, does that mean that you were in one administrative area? No, actually, Tibet was, uh, even when they, in the Qing dynasty, collected taxes, it was from a different department than the provinces of China. It wasn't the same. So, I mean, you know, what does it mean to be part of China? So this is exactly what this is saying, you know, even the, the word, the meaning that you give to the words is subjective. What category you fit it into. So what actually was the situation? Well, you have to corroborate, you know, check with many, many other people. But then, if there's propaganda, all the Chinese will believe the Chinese side, and all the Tibetans will believe the Tibetan side. So that's a difficult thing as well, isn't it? So all you can say is that the situation was very, very complicated. In some ways, it was Tibet was independent. In some ways, it had a uh, close relation with China. They traded with China. But in the Ming Dynasty, for instance, the uh, um, Tibetans refused to uh, allow horse trading with, uh, between Tibet and uh, China. And that caused a big problem, is where the horses come from. They came from Mongolia and from uh, Tibet. Yeah. And so there were big trade restrictions. So what did it mean to be part of China? It's a myth. Part of China meaning that the map of China as they draw it today includes Tibet, therefore that map is always valid. I mean, this, these are, it's difficult to really determine what is objectively real from the Chittimatra point of view. We will get, you know, later on the, the Svetantrikas and the Madhyama and the Prasangikas will say, well, I mean, there are external phenomena, but you can't understand it in the same substantially established way as uh, the Sautrantikas and Vaibhashikas take it. For them, everything is almost independent. Now, that's not the case. Yeah? Right, last time you tried to make a big distinction between Presenting this material with your sense perception and with what perception? Sense perception. Sense perception. So that big well, that's the difference between the coarse and the subtle synthesis of phenomenon is whether we're talking about sense perception or conceptual cognition. History and all of that. That is last time you tried to leave that aside because that is, you know, very. Right. Last time I, I wanted to leave it aside because I didn't want to get into the subtle selflessness. I see. But that was the point. I see. That was because the I find these these, these um, things of history are much more graspable than mis a confusing sense perception. I think your example was a little bit understandable 
to you because it gets a bit, I mean, sense perception is sometimes very straightforward in a sense. I mean, mo more so than these things. These, uh, to me, some are of more highly disputable history. What you, you know, what you heard, what you interpret, what you, what a word means, or what, what a, a convention in the society is, what is appropriate, what is not. I think there's much more, you know, discourse about that than the sense perception. So I, there is, there is something like mishearing something or seeing different things different ways or that I wouldn't disagree with. But I think the more relevant example is this, and um, is this um, conundrum that we make of our, you know, what we make out of reality by words by writing up history. Right. Books. So this is why the the bodhisattvas emphasize that. Mm. They emphasize the subtle selflessness. That this is much, in a sense, it's more obvious. Mm -hmm. That uh, you know, we get all misunderstandings in terms of our what we remember, what meaning we give to uh, words, how we interpret what we see, how we interpret what we uh, hear, and so on. But there can also be these grosser cases where mm -hmm. I just didn't hear you correctly. Yeah. But was where you so strict about not going into the the more away from the causal side to the, the more the, the um, the well last time when we did we wanted to stay with the course level and not get into the meaning of what we heard or the meaning of what we saw the meaning is we do that conceptually when we fit it into a category yeah. but for Chitamata it seems to be relevant to go to the subtle yeah for prasanga, for bodhisattvas following the, the Chitamata path yes there's the coarse and the subtle. The coarse is doctrinally based. Doctrinally based means that you believe the Sautrantika thing that uh, in the first moment there is a uh, externally existent thing and then the second moment you see it. Well, how could you know that it was there in order to see it is the Chittamatra objection. But if you accept the Satrantika point of view, or that actually is the Western point of view as well, that the thing is there and it's emitting, you know, photons, and then, you know, that's going on the moment before, and now, you know, it strikes your eyes, and now you see it. So that's the doctrinally based, that's a scientifically based thing. The second one is more automatically arising. That, you know, automatically we think that things mean what we think they mean. Nobody has to teach you that. So this is the distinction between the course and the subtle. Then, if I may go back to the same example of Tibet and China, and from Chittamatra point of view, what would be the basis for Tibet to insist their own sort of what is the basis? Lightness or right, so from the 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 you're saying the from the Chittamatra point of view, what would be the base for uh, asserting that uh, you know, the Tibetan point of view, the Tibetan uh, was an, an independent entity? Uh, well, there is no common locus, remember, of what everybody thinks. So you could have a common view by shared karma which can also be reinforced by what people are taught in 
school and what they're taught. You know, obviously you don't you're not born thinking that way. Somebody had to teach you that. You weren't there in history. You know. So how do you know? Somebody told you. So then, I mean, now we get into ways of knowing. Can we know it from, you know, uh, what is it called? Uh, bare cognition. How can you see that? To that is independent. You can't see that. So then inference. So can you infer it logically? Well, you have to think of logical reasons why it was uh, independent. It had a flag. Well, that doesn't mean anything. It, uh, <laughs> you know, what did it do? What, what now it comes into your definition of, of uh, um, inference. You know, there's inference based on uh, logic. There's inference based on uh, convention, which has to do with uh, the meaning of words. You know, that, you know, you said these sounds and I infer by convention that it is this word and it has this meaning. That's inference by uh, convention, the basis of convention. And then there's inference based on uh, a... Uh, valid authority. In other words, uh, you know, the example is, you know, your birthday. You can't do, know that by logic. You can't, you didn't, you can't remember, you know, see it and remember it. So you have to uh, rely on your mother who was a valid source of information that she was there. So uh, you would have to rely on a valid source of uh, information. But I mean, if there's evidence in terms of legal documents and things like that, then you can infer that this is your own perception that this is correct that Tibet was independent so then the logic has to be correct you know because of this fact this fact this fact this fact then it is correct and if then you have to learn all the rules of logic you know you can come to a false conclusion you could have insufficient evidence that doesn't prove it. All these sort of things. So this is how you would go about finding out what actually was valid. That you couldn't say objectively it took place and everybody witnessed it. So it's not like the elephant that uh, each person touches the elephant and, and have a different... Uh, understanding of the elephant, but the elephant is still there. So one, you know, one touches the tail and believes it's something and one touches Well, this is, okay, the example of the elephant. Blind people, one person touches the ears, one person touches the trunk, the, the tail, the belly, and they have uh, their own category that they fit this animal into based on the appearance you know, that they had in the, the tactile appearance that they had, well, they have insufficient evidence. So to infer that that is the entirety of the animal, 
is insufficient evidence because it would be contradicted by a mind that by moving the hand over on another part of the body, it would be contradicted. So again, you go back to ways of knowing and logic. But the, so there is, you know, is there an objective elephant yeah, that's sitting the there? That's yes, the that's thing. The that would be the common locus. Right. But and you can't say that because each person's experience <clears throat> and how they interpret it will be different. You know, you can have a physical sensation of touching the body of an elephant and your interpretation, you know, what do, we, what do you notice? So one person could notice that it is hairy. Elephants have a little bit of hair on them. Another person could notice that it's warm. It's, you know, you never expect that you think it's going to be like a snake. But it's warm, an elephant. If you've ever touched an elephant, which I have. So, um, each person, even the sense perception. Within the sense perception, remember there is the mental factor of attention. So within that tactile sensation of your hand on the belly of an elephant, what are you paying attention to? Within that field of consciousness, within that sensory field, you could distinguish just the feeling of the hair, or you could distinguish the temperature, or the texture of the skin. And then, by logic, you can then infer, well, it's very hard to infer from a tactile sensation what something actually looks like, especially if you're blind. So, um, you have to analyze. Is there objectively an elephant that each person is touching? Well, it's hard to prove. That's hard to prove. I mean, I always use the example of, you know, we're sitting in a circle here in the room. If we all, you know, if I put so, uh, something in the middle and everybody takes a photo of it with their phone and you look at all the photos, they're all different. So how do you know that it's the same thing? That's this challenge that I say is prove that we're all sitting in the same room. It's very hard to prove. But still, as you said, uh, based on logic and uh, authority, and what more was? Uh, uh, based on uh, logic, based on convention, convention of what sounds, you know, that a sound is a word and it has a meaning. When you hear, a, all you're hearing is a sound, after all. But then by convention, sound you infer, you infer that it's a word and you infer that it has meaning. That's authority, I mean, but the Chittamatra still say that so based on these three, there is valid. Well, there is valid, valid cognition, valid sure. Valid cognition and false cognition that doesn't stand on. This. Yes, they accept that there is valid and incorrect cognition, definitely. Yeah, it's also about the let's say about the history. If we go back, the about the history as well. There's history. a valid way of looking at it, and invalid way, right? But mind you, by convention, convention, you know, of what the words mean or what the events mean, this is by convention. 
and each society could have different conventions of what it means. So then we get into, I mean, but we don't want to get into that now. You know, the, uh, there's the whole, I don't know if it applies to Chittamatra, probably it does, but it's in Madhyamaka, you know, the whole um, pus water nectar uh, issue. That the uh, ghost experience it as pus, humans as water, gods as nectar. What is it? Well, you can't say you know that from a not only from the Chittamatra point of view, but even from the Madhyamaka point of view, from the, at least Prasangika point of view, you can't say that there is a liquid there which everybody is perceiving differently. Each one is valid to that uh, species. So for the Chinese it has a certain you know, validity that Tibet was part of China and for the Tibetans it has a validity that it was not part of China. Perhaps. Yeah, Perhaps. I don't know. I mean maybe one would have to analyze. This is what you have to analyze. Is it the same as the nectar plus water? Yeah, uh, maybe what it conundrum. The land doesn't belong to anybody. Probably. The land doesn't belong to anybody. That's neither, right. Neither Where are Tibetan. they? That's right. It's what does it mean? Conceptual Absolutely. What does it Tibetan. Absolutely. What does it mean? There's only land. Is that the common denominator? The common locus. There's only land, and now we say that this is. This is mine. This is my country. Tibetan, oh, this is Tibet. What does it mean for any piece of land to be part of a country? Yeah. That you tax it? Well, there has to be people there. I mean, what, what makes it part of a country? Concept. It's concept, sure. But I think and boundaries change of countries as well. Yeah. So it becomes very, very complicated. Well, Not complicated, but it becomes very... There is convention. I mean, now you I mean you get to the point where you see that everything is convention. Yeah. Yeah, about Tibet, one interesting thing, which is the argument against the independence of Tibet, is that Tibet didn't join the independent Tibet, did not join the postal uh, uh, unions, you know, the, the international postal union, because it they didn't make post. Uh -huh. And so they said, you cannot be a country because you didn't join the post uh, system as a proof that you're not a country. You know, but that was one way of defining yeah. what country is. Right. Exactly. That's the right. That there's, it has a postal code. That a, it's, a, it's a member of the postal union. Right. So that was one argument against the independence of and Tibet, that it did not join country. the postal union. It also didn't join the United Nations, but then again, neither did Kurdistan or some of the other. Oh, but the United Nations was not existing. Right, or the time. League of Nations, yeah, or, League of Nation. or whatever. Yeah. But so what defines yeah. a, uh, a country? Yeah. And, you know, the big one was about Yugoslavia, you know, when it broke up, you know, if you talk about what is, you know, is Yugoslavia, you know, when they, they, 
and to discuss the seat of Yugoslavia at the United Nations, you know. What is Yugoslavia when Yugoslavia doesn't exist? Who needs to sit instead of Yugoslavia and so on and so forth? And it became a really big mess. But, you know, in terms of definition of what is a country, what is a, a concept. Hmm. So I guess still, if we go for that, maybe Chinese people also have a right to live together in the Tibetan land. But the whole problem is the way how they came in and this violence. Yeah. Is something that should be really criticized. Well, do the Chinese have a right to live on Tibet, so-called Tibetan territory? Well, that's the same thing in terms of refugee. I mean, there's refugees going in. There are migrants going in. Uh, there are colonists going in. So again, these are labels, you know, with the intention and so on. Are they coming in to rule? They've conquered it. I don't know. I mean, this is, you know, we have the same issue with uh, Mongolia. The Manchus with Qing Dynasty, you know, made up, you know, Outer Mongolia and Inner Mongolia. Made Inner Mongolia part of, of you know, well, actually they ruled the whole thing. But uh, when the Qing Dynasty fell, then so-called Inner Mongolia got part of China. And then the Russians claimed, you know, North Mongolia is Buryatia, part of, of Russia. And look at Poland, how much, how much that's been divided between different empires. So what actually is a country? Is it defined by people that speak the same language? Well, then you have a problem. Or look at the way that the, the colonials made a map of Africa, dividing it into countries. It's nothing there. That really made them countries. So these are very difficult situations. And now the area in which Tibetans live is spread over five different provinces in China. So what is Tibet? Well, anyway, this is the Chittimatra point of view. Uh, about the subtle selflessness of all phenomenon, and if we were to do this uh, uh, exercise more fully, we would do uh, donglen on ourselves in terms of taking on the problems from this misconception and so on, giving ourselves correct understanding, and then we would do that uh, same issue with thinking about others when they uh, have the same problem, which is Often in the case of uh, arguments that uh, not only do we misunderstand what they say, they misunderstand what we say, and, you know, doing don't lend with that, you know, may they be free of that uh, misunderstanding of that problem and give them correct understanding. So then you have a very full exercise to do with a subtle selflessness of all phenomena as relating to specifically persons. And you can see that it's very, very practical. And it doesn't negate the usefulness of the Sautrantika exercise of seeing what categories do we actually conventionally, so-called objectively, fit into. And the problems that we have when we deny, you know, our biological parents or our family religion or you know, our country of origin. 
And when you deny that, then you get into all sorts of you know, loyalty conflicts and these sort of things that uh, our visiting psychiatrist talks about. But, you know, one thing that was, in terms of these different views, you know, that you, you understand, they say, for instance, that you understand that the person talks you in anger, the other person say, no, I didn't. And really, the fairness in, in a relationship would be that for both sides to accept that the other side is as valid as one side, which is difficult. Right. That's exactly the Chinamatra position, that in, a, uh, in order to be fair to, in an argument to both sides, in which one person thinks that uh, the other person was angry with them and the other person says, no, it's just, that's just my normal speaking tone of voice. Uh, that uh, to be fair to both, you have to consider that that each side has its own validity, and that's exactly this. That uh, the sounds, you know, let alone what words you heard, you know, what sounds you heard, um, but uh, um, especially if you're, you're communicating through. You know, Skype or one of these things where often it's, you know, the, the quality isn't very good of the sound. So we misunderstand the sound. That's the coarse subtle, the coarse subtle, uh, coarse selflessness. But uh, the meaning that each side has its own validity to them. You know, it, it is their convention and acknowledge that uh, each side, I understood it as this and no, and I understood it as that. And then, you know, try to, what should we say? Understand each side, in a sense. That, you know, well, I didn't mean to, I mean, you have to take the more benevolent, I suppose, decision. That uh, I wasn't angry. That the person saying that I wasn't angry, that this was just my speaking voice, has a stronger validity than the person saying you were angry with me. Because if we, I acknowledge that you thought I was angry with you, but in fact, I'm not. That that is a better resolution than the resolution that, yes, you were really angry at me. I don't know, what would you say? I mean, sure, I mean, that's, that's helpful, I mean, obviously, to get to minimize the, uh, you know, the, conflict. the conflict or the escalation, but that sort of, you know, able, ability to decenter yourself to see that the other one is also a valid position, rather than, you know, it can be only my position, but to really give, you know, like, not, not regret, but to really be able to accept the fact that you're not the center of the world to judge what is right. right. To accept that I'm not, it takes a lot to accept that I'm not the center of the world and I'm not always right and the way that I perceive it is always correct. That's why underlying all of this is the coarse and subtle selflessness of persons. I'm not a static entity that is always correct monolithically, that I'm always correct, there's never anything else. And this is the way that I am, you know, independently of circumstances and, you know, whatever. So, and, you know, this is where you get the difference between, I don't know if it's in Chinamatra, it's certainly in Prasangika, of uh, coarse and subtle disturbing emotions. 
coarse ones are with the grasping for the self-sufficiently knowable name, in which case the movement of the winds, the energy, is much stronger. Now, you're really upset when you take things personally. If you understand that the, you know, the uh, selflessness, subtle selflessness of persons, then you're still grasping for selflessness of phenomenon, but the subtle disturbing emotions that will arise from that, they're much weaker in terms of the energy. So there's a distinction made between coarse and subtle disturbing emotions. It's primarily, for some of I don't know, as I say, whether Chinamaksha would accept that as well, but one could imagine that it would apply. Could you please repeat again? When you take a problem personally, that you were angry with me, then you get the energy of your anger is much stronger compared with, compared with taking it as an impersonal way. The way that you speak is really always, you know, angersome. You, know, you have a term, you know, there's a... This, you're not taking it personally. Um, you could still get a bit angry, but... Uh, you would get a bit angry, but less. But less energy to it. When you take things personally, it's stronger, disturbing emotion. <laughs> Good. So, let's end with the dedication. I think whatever understanding of the positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper. And act as a cause for everyone to achieve the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all.